Okay, so a question that I get asked a lot, sorry, this is beat type of murmur, it's uh, me plus words, beat type of, sorry, I just died straight in. But a question that I get asked a lot about is, well, this, is this can come from families, can come from tribunal judges, come from cloisters, and come from teachers, other speech therapists, but the question I often ask is around the level of speech therapy that I have um, recommended for a child and how I've come to that level of speech therapy. And it's it's something I've talked about on previous podcasts, but I realised having 138 podcasts on the episode so far will mean that the vast majority of them haven't been listened to um, by one individual and that they may have listened to one or two, or maybe not, but if they've listened to one or two, then they won't have this answer. And I kind of, how how do I come to the conclusion as to how many sessions sessions the child should have? And this is a tricky one, because I can't find a single research paper, I can't find a single jot of evidence with regards to the frequency and duration of speech and language therapy direct whether speech therapy therapist is qualified for any child uh, with any level of speech subject and communication needs. And the reason is that every single child is different and children have comorbid difficulties and different severities within their comorbidities. So a autistic child is an autistic child and they're all completely different from the other autistic child. Same with children with Down syndrome, the same with children with language disorders, the same with children with speech speech disorders, the same with children that are, are autistic with a language disorder and a speech disorder. So when we're breaking it down, there's never ever going to be research and evidence to back up the 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 dosage of direct speech and language therapy for that particular child, and that's why. When we come to service guidelines um, and pathways within big services such as the NHS, they have to go by what is a what I'd consider to be a relatively generalist approach or a, a widespread approach to a particular diagnosis. So if a child has X diagnosis, then we provide X, Y, Z. Um, because they can't tailor it to specific children because if they, they just it's just impossible to do it on scale. If you tailor it on scale, um, then you, you're you not going to get it right. And, and I can't get it perfectly right either. But what I can do is I can look at all the information I have about that child and then go back to myself and think, right, remember out of this, so I did 300 assessments last year. I'll keep banging on about 300. I think I'll do about 250, 300 this year as well based on current numbers. So <coughs> I've assessed well over 1,000 children over the last kind of, I'd say over the last Let's call it five years. Um, so in the last five years, out of those thousand children, I get I get feedback from parents and speech therapists working with those children with regards to uh, once they've got it onto the education health care partner in their statement, how well they're doing. So that's one thing that I use. The other thing is I've been qualified 14 years. Um, I work for the NHS across five different trusts, across five different locations. Um, and I've dipped in and out of local authority and NHS work over, over those 14 years. But outside of that, um, I've done a hell of a lot of independent speech and language therapy. And because of my location, when I was based, obviously based in London, I had the clinic over in a horrible place, Harley Street. But 
that led to me working with families that had incredibly high net worth. Um, so these families were your your 0.01% of the world with regards to wealth. And these families would come to me and say, what does my child need? And if I was unethical, I could book them in for constant therapy, but I never did. I, I recommended what I felt that child needed, and I was able, and I had complete flexibility to tweak up, tweak down, and work outside of what we'd see as the box in terms of speech service therapy. So when I was working across the Middle East, when I was working in Russia, when I was working in, in India, when I was working in Nigeria, I was able to go to look at the child and say, right, how often is this, does this child need to be seen? So I'd start with my original figure in terms of what I'd call dosage. And then I would see how it's working and whether they are moving on and whether and whether moving on just by a direct speech therapy was helpful or a more eclectic approach of a program plus therapy, plus training, plus modeling, plus reassessment. And bringing all those recommendations together, I've worked out also that let's say 12 of those 14 years of working directly with with families or with children where there isn't a limit on resources, I'm able to come to a, a figure for the vast majority of children that is reasonable, so not all the therapy. Um, it's not the five-star kind of gold or platinum service level of speech therapy because that's what I'm not supposed to be recommending when it comes to EHDPs and statements. But it's a reasonable amount of therapy. And my argument is always, right, more of the same. I don't recommend more of what's happening right now. So no, no more of the same, because the same, the same, the same isn't changing this child. They're actually going backwards. They're regressing. Their peers are advancing and they're regressing. So I state that these children need a boost in their speech and language therapy skills. So their speech language and communication skills, um, they, need, they need a boost in. And in order to get that boost, I've prescribed, like a, like like anybody would prescribe, a, a level of speech language therapy and a package of speech language therapy that I see as reasonable. Um, and with caveats in there in terms of the flexibility of how that therapy is delivered, but in terms of the duration of therapy, I base that on the level of the child's current joint attention skills and their hopeful potential joint attention skills over a short period of time once therapy is implemented. So my therapy sessions are often recommended between 20 and 30 minutes for younger children and 30 and 40 minutes for older children and adolescents um, based on what I've seen in my experience of working with those age groups and the, and the, and the needs within those age groups. And then frequency um, is, is determined by the, the severity of, the, of the, the, the need but also the notion of what can be changed now, how often do you need to work on something um, in terms of making that change? And this all is linked back to having someone who has a dedicated one-to-one -to, -one to deliver that communication program. And a communication program that's reviewed by the speech therapist X number of times per term or per year. And when you bring that all, and the, and the individual that's delivering the program is also trained and has had therapy modeled to them and they understand how to step up and step down for the, for the short term, very short term aims or outcomes. 
so when you bring that all together, I've, I think through experience, through, and it is anecdotal, I, you can't use anything but anecdotal evidence when it comes to an individual child's needs. And these kids are incredibly complex kids. If they've got an education healthcare plan, then they're going to be complex. You can't have an education healthcare plan if you just have one primary need and it doesn't affect all, all kind of facets of your communication and education. It has to affect everything or thereabouts. It has to be in more than one domain in terms of cognition and learning, sensory, um, social emotional and communication interaction. There has to be information in at least two of those areas to really justify having an education healthcare plan. Um, so that's how I get to where I am. I'm never going to get it perfectly right. It's impossible to get it perfectly right because for the vast majority of these children, it's the first time they've actually had the direct therapy. Um, and direct therapy, as Libby Hill and I, and lots of the therapists bang on about a lot, direct therapy is only successful, it can only be successful once that therapist and that child have developed a therapeutic relationship and there is rapport. And because, and my concern is a lot of the children that I end up seeing for assessment, um, they've had, they've experienced kind of significant levels of trauma and because of that, it takes a long time for the therapist to get an inroad and to work with that particular child. And that's always my concern that, yes, I'm making a recommendation for X number of sessions per term or per, per month or per week or whatever it is. A lot of that time to begin with cannot be outcome driven because it can't be out, it, there can't be an outcome that the child will, well, I suppose you could write it as well, but I disagree with it. I think it needs to be flexibly used to start with, or the findings are flexibly used to start with, to build up a rapport with that child so that they're able to let you in to do therapy. And for some children, that takes absolutely ages. Uh, these children, I mean, like I said previously, I had a child when I was working in uh, Redbridge, um, my first rule, and I think I was a speech therapist number 13 for a seven-year-old child, number 13, <coughs> therapists were just coming and going, coming and going, coming and going, and I, I made a point in my first term to not consider targets and intervention with this little one, I wanted them to trust me, to like me, to be able to have a relationship so that I could then take him to places in therapy that other therapists weren't able to because they were so target driven and they but they, they hadn't taken the time for him to really get them and for them to get him um, and it just didn't work and that's why therapists were struggling because their parents are complaining constantly that this therapist doesn't get their child and you can't get a child if you just come in and start doing work for them you've got to get to know them um, and that's the, the beauty of working um, either in a specialist school as an NHS or local authority therapist or an independent therapist or working privately because you have that, you can have a significant amount more, kind of more exposure and interaction to the child that don't have to be specifically outcome driven. I guess the outcome is for the child to trust you but how do you measure that? Um, it's not, none of this is scientific, it can't be scientific. Uh, well, it can be scientific, but um, the vast majority of the time, we, we're working with personalities, we're working with diagnoses, we're working in complex 
environment, which includes family, which includes um, teaching teams, and working out what is functional for that child. Uh, I did an annual review yesterday, and it's uh, a, an autistic child in a primary, in a primary mainstream school, and every single one of the targets that were written by the speech therapy service last year have no function whatsoever. So some of the targets were for the, for the child to say um, 10 words within a lesson. And literally, for the child to say 10 words in a lesson, I've met them twice, and at home they will say some single words. At school, they completely mute because their levels of self-regulation and anxiety are so high so their levels of anxiety are so high and their self-regulation is so poor um, that, or their self-regulation is so brilliant because um, they're able to stay present and be in school um, but unable to engage in activities and engage in adult-led work and also uh, spend most of the time hidden, their face hidden, their body hidden, etc. But we went through the targets and the same was like, right, let's just lift them straight from Chris's report because the previous outcomes, I said, yeah, I can get this child to meet all those outcomes in about three sessions. It's not rocket science. But your issue is there's no function to any of them. So there's no function for a child to just be in a classroom. Just an outcome of saying the child must be in the classroom for 60 seconds or a minute. So there's no function at all to that. And so the function might be, yes, they're in their own room, but then the functional aspect of getting them into the classroom to start interacting with their peers at some point would be that they go into the classroom once a day to collect their scissors or to put their bag there, then they go back. There's a function to doing that. There's no function to say a child should be in the classroom for 60 seconds. Um, there's no function to say a child must use 10 words in each lesson. It makes no sense at all. I'm, I'm all about function, all about communication, all about making sure a child's in the best place they, they can be in order to move them forward. Um, but we have to put function first and happiness and safety first. Right, enjoy your day. Take care. Bye.